Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Liz Whitmere, an actor you've seen in everything from Being Erica, Flashpoint, and Unreal to The Handmaid's Tale, Titans, and Apple's new series, The Changeling. She's also a writer, producer, and director, and her latest short film, Cold, stars Melanie Scrofano as a woman facing more than just wrinkles the day she turns 40. It's having its world premiere in the Mournful Mediums program in Toronto's Blood in the Snow Film Festival this Saturday, November 25th at 4 p.m. Tickets are available right now at bloodinthesnow.ca, and you should check it out. Liz chose The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Yorgos Lanthimos' arch-2017 thriller starring Colin Farrell as Stephen, an arrogant surgeon offered a terrible choice by Barry Kiosman Martin, the son of a patient he wronged. Stephen must kill one member of his family to balance the scales, or watch them all suffer and die from an inexplicable malady. That sounds like the premise of a horror movie, but if you've seen the movie, you know that horror isn't quite what Lanthimos is going for. And if you haven't seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer, maybe you should. Watch it before you listen to this episode, okay? It'll be better for everyone. This is someone else's movie. The Killing of Sacred Deer was brought to my attention by my amazing cinematographer, Cabot McNenley, on Cold as a visual reference for the film. So Cold being my short, um, I wanted to do something unsettling and not obviously slasher, knife in the shower, psycho kind of horror. I wanted to do something weirder and Cabot suggested that I watch it as a visual reference to get us on the same page and I was captivated from the first shot and I couldn't figure out why and that was the best feeling because I was just stuck in this movie and I had no reason like it's it's so it's such beautiful tension building from the very first moment and there's so little information shared in those first scenes like there's so you don't know anything at all and that's one of my favorite states of being when i'm watching something the cold opens for breaking bad gave me that feeling mm-hmm. that like what this is like visual poetry and i don't i will understand it soon but i don't understand it yet that sensation of like security with a filmmaker you can tell there's a sure hand at the wheel but it's not clear yet and that was that's why i chose this movie oh that's as good a reason as any i mean it's a really <laughs> It's a good reason. Uh, full stop. It's there is something about Lanthimos's ability to not worry about the audience as a mm-hmm. filmmaker, and it happens. I haven't seen Poor Things yet. I'm actually going to see it tomorrow. Um, but uh, his his kink seems to be edging, like denying yeah, people the exactly. information they desperately want to know, and knowing that he'll get there. Yeah, I, I think about Dogtooth and, and Alps, which are yeah. completely alien landscapes, really, to be dropped mm-hmm. into. These are movies where the rules are different and the yeah. characters already understand them. They've internalized it. And then he started making movies in English. And it's like, well, I think I have to situate them differently there is some kind of weird alienating effect that he pulls in killing of a sacred deer that he hasn't done since or at least he didn't do in the favorite he may well have done it in poor things um but it it was not in the lobster right yeah. the lobster is this emotional story where you have to learn the language of the emotions but then killing of a sacred deer is almost drained of emotion yeah and and it is 
about a father. Ultimately, it's about a father um, trying to decide which of his children to kill. So how do you do that with that emotion? How do you make a clinical version of that story? Well, it's such a, so that was part of the, the machine of the film that I found so compelling because it's a, you know, the Sophie's choice of it, the, the impossible decision of it. And because the given circumstances of the world of the film are, well, of course I have to kill one of my kids. This makes perfect sense to lift the curse, you know? Uh, and then I feel like Lanthimos was really interested in looking at the mechanics of how you would make that decision, it would be so easy to slip into histrionics. It would be so easy to be weeping and wailing, beating your chest and tearing your hair out when you have to kill, murder your child. But the fact that he chose to go intellectual about it and the comedy in it, when, when the father is spinning around with a shotgun with a hat over his head, it's just, it's so funny. And that's that absurdity, the like dropping people into completely banana circumstances is like, it's my heroine. I love it so much. <laughs> I saw it with an audience that did not get it or not oh, no. did not get it, but actively rejected it. No. Um, yeah, it was, um, I think it must have been a public evening screening before it opened. It was after it played the festival, but before it opened theatrically. Mm. Uh, commercially, and they clearly did not know what they were in for. There was a lot of rustling and shifting, and Colin Farrell and, and Nicole Kidman seemed to disappoint them uh, as, mm. as actors. And I don't, I don't fully get it. I, I'm, it's not my favorite of Lanthimos's films, but I understand what it wants and what it's doing. And I just feel like they wanted a Michael Haneke movie. Like they wanted mm -hmm. a merciless, a truly merciless film. And this, as you say, this is an intellectualization of tragedy, but it's, it's almost abstract in the, in the way that it presents things, right? Like it's, yeah. it's a world where curses happen uh, and clearly yeah. work, but also we have science and medicine. And so the, which makes sense, right? I mean, if, if magic was real, we'd still have technology, I assume. Yeah. Um, but the idea of the collision between the two and the fact that one won't save you from the other is seems to me to be the crux of the film like it's 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 about guilt but it's about being forced to feel guilt in a way that i think audiences just either that audience either didn't want or outright loathed being made to feel uh well i mean i it, the film made me uncomfortable for a lot of reasons and, it, and i i enjoy that that was mm. i signed up for that so you know it was oh, yeah, a good match that's why we're there <laughs> yeah exactly but it was it felt very much like uh in that curses are kind of cosmic punishment like if that's the notion then this father is being punished for his massive ego and his complete narcissism like that's that's what he's meeting his karmic you know um revenge for like he's being taught a lesson that he doesn't understand and he never he never receives it he doesn't have the arc that we're craving and and as you say it's edging right it's this like is anyone is anybody gonna cry is anybody <laughs> is anybody gonna get upset about this and it's also uh in speaking with cabot about framing choices and mm -hmm. stuff because i'm also i'm a photographer as well and i love image making and visual allegory watching the framing become more about architecture than it is about people in that film felt like such a straight line from concept to execution 
because it's about what actually happens when you have to choose which kid to kill. What, where are the gears and the pivots and what lever do you pull and how do you, what's the reality of making it happen? Which is a really fun, imaginative exploration of absurd circumstances. And I, it's wonderful. I love looking inside. It, it, it's a different angle of magic, as you say, magic plus technology. What would it actually look like if people could levitate? What would the actual problems be if we could become invisible? You know, all of those things. And mm -hmm. I feel like a couple other films have, have touched on that, like Unbreakable. And, you know, there's a, there's a bit of the, like gritty, realistic, supernatural component uh, films that I really enjoy. The practicality of it. Yeah. Like what, what would really happen? You would be inside it. There's no hand waving. It's all fine. Or in, you know, like in, in Looper when, um, they explain away time travel. Oh, with right, like, yeah, well, yeah. I could draw it on a napkin, but I'm not gonna, because you know that's ridiculous. There's not. It's very killing. Killing of a sacred deer doesn't shy away from the like the mechanisms of it and the banality of egotistical narcissistic surgeons and anesthesiologists. Just yeah. you know, is the fanciness of your watch the most important thing in your life right now? Oh my god! Just this the first time you see the beard. Like, that that is like that beard says. This guy's an asshole, and I don't yeah. know how. I don't know how it works, um, but it's something about Farrell's willingness to do that, like to to wear it. Like the beard, yeah. he's wearing the beard. The beard doesn't wear him, but it is such like it is like a vanity statement in some weird, inexplicable way. Because it's not fancy, it's not no. elaborate, but it's manicured yeah. in a way that just tells me right away this guy pays far too much attention to himself, to his image. Yes. And, well, and that's then, the economy of visual language, right? Like yeah. you learn so much with so little dialogue. Well, and the and the sex scene, the early sex scene with, with Kidman, where she just basically turns herself into a mannequin for him. It's like, oh, okay, that's not that's yeah. not right. And it's what they want. So yeah. here we are. These are the people that we are going to follow for the next two hours. And they're weirdos. <laughs> well, and it so efficiently sets us up for like, these people are not going to be reasonable. There's not, That's true. there's no predictable decision-making to be had here. So buckle up because yeah. if they're doing anesthesia sex, then, <laughs> then I don't know how they're going to parent these children. Not well. No, no, oh, not God. well. The kids are, and the kids, like you feel for the kids because they are the victims. They're too old. They're too young. Sorry. They're not old enough to, be, to have real agency yet. They're the victims of their parents' decisions. And then they're the victims of something else entirely. But the relationships that are established within that understanding are still sad. Yeah. Right. They, the parents talk about how much they love and value their children, but they don't actually demonstrate any of it. I and mean, I mean, nobody does. It's that kind of movie. It's very still and quiet. Alps was very similar in that mm -hmm. they were all characters who are trying to cope with massive losses and tragedies and can't speak about them yet. And that's the whole principle of the premise of that movie is how you get to being able to talk about it. And here there's not even that release. There's no, yeah. there's no hope. Um, yeah. The lobster was a hopeful film in a really perverse way because it, at least there were human impulses in play. Yeah. It acknowledges feeling. Yeah. And this one, the, I, I mean, I had seen Barry Keen and a few other things by that point, but here he's just so deliberately off-putting and weird 
and still somehow he's the character with the most emotion in the entire film because he's feeling this <laughs> he's carrying this loss that he's shaped into a point yeah yeah Oof. it's i know that um the performances in the film are affected in a way because Lanthimos doesn't like performance he doesn't want acting i mean there's still there's performance here but he's removed a lot of the um the art of it mm. not that's the wrong word the artifice i guess is what i'm saying yeah no, there's not no a pushed. single yeah not a single performance is calling attention to itself yeah and it's it does that thing that um that i think film is supposed to do that it's it's not to get too pretentious about <laughs> it and holding a mirror up to human behavior it's just like it's a neutral face allows you to project yourself onto it so yeah. you can you can kind of pretend your way into the story and embody it and have this cathartic, I mean, there's no cathartic release to be had in this film, but you can, you can be the dad, you can be Nicole Kidman, you can be, you know, because they're not being anything particularly. Right. It's the opposite of, yeah, it it does. It's the opposite of having a rooting interest, right? Like you're not, you're not pulling for this family to figure itself out. You want to see where it goes because you think about what you would do. It's it's a they become our avatars, or you can choose which avatar you want. Exactly, and it's presenting this like very calm discussion of world-ending problems for a parent, your Mm -hmm. your child's imminent demise, in these calm, reasonable tones. And I've been in enough meetings talking about really critical stuff where the appropriate response is to scream and yell and jump up and down and cry. And everyone in the room is just like, well, you know, if we consider it this way, then maybe it would be better to, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. I think maybe that's a, that's a piece of what pulled me so hard into this movie was because it felt like it was showing that dynamic and being like, look at this. Do you see how crazy this is without, um, without goosing it too much? If that I don't know if that lands. I'm not sure if I'm expressing myself clearly, but it's... No, no, no. It, that's exactly it. It's... it's um, The film is reserved uh, in the in the presentation of things that are unimaginable, right? Like, just, mm. just completely, simultaneously preposterous and horrible. And I think yeah. that's what I meant about the Haneke thing, where you expect a certain level of cruelty from... Mm that cinema that isn't present here yeah there's no doubt in my mind that lanthimos is invested in the story that he wants a resolution that makes sense like there there's a logic to everything that happens it's just not immediately understandable to the outside and so it pulls you in because like what is what is the point where is this going there is i love this uh i did my my standard research pull up the internet you know find out everything i could about the movie before we start talking just in case there was a behind the scenes story i didn't know and there's not much it sounds like he just shot it very efficiently and and it came together very quickly but my favorite thing is that when you google uh i was googling my reviews of some stuff of some other lanthimos films just to see it and the act of googling now toronto yorgos lanthimos brings up people also ask and my favorite question ever is what are the themes in yorgos lanthimos (laughs) The man. And I don't, yeah. And I don't want to click on the answer, but I'm going to look at it. Okay. Uh, what are the themes in Yorgos? Well, this is AI, right? So it just pulls yeah, on course. whatever it can find. Um, well, it's going to invent a source and then misquote it. Yeah. 
uh, it's come up with something called so the theory goes.com, which sounds like a great website, actually. Um, okay. uh, it's a great name for a website. Anyway, uh, it's, it simply says his narratives often delve into the darkest corners of human nature, exploring themes of power dynamics, control, identity, and the absurdity of social conventions. And that sounds to me like they're describing Ruben Ostland. Mm. And I was starting to think, well, now does Ostland, like, is it Ostland or Haneke or Lothar? And I think one of the most, this film specifically occupies that space between the two, where mm. it is a comedy, but it's not. And it is a thriller, but it's really not. Yeah. And it's all about depriving us of a foothold, of, of understanding. Yeah. And as you say, you dropped right in at the very beginning and you, you either love it or you hate it. Yes. And I'm familiar enough with his movies that I lean forward and was like, oh, where are we going? <laughs> I know these actors, what are they doing? Yeah. And you get somewhere that is, again, designed to deny you the release of the premise where mm -hmm. you nailed it. If there's a lesson, he didn't learn it. And it ends with this, just that great moment where one character comes into the restaurant, everybody else leaves. And that doesn't, that's not what I wanted. It's, it's, yeah. it's great. It's a great ending, but you know, you want to see thrashing and throttling and violence and you want the explosion of it. And <laughs> just the fact that it's a balloon with the air going out of it at the end, I think, <laughs> I think it's, it puts you in the, the state of having lost, which is the point, yeah. but it does it without the narrative resolving itself. You were just brought to this point and I'm leaping to the end. I know, but the whole movie is the journey to this, feeling that the air is escaping and that you'll never get the closure you want, which is, I think, suddenly we're in Martin's perspective. We're in, we're in Kios place instead yeah. of like, we've been identifying with, with Farrell this whole time. Mm. We've been, in, you've been watching Steven this entire time as Martin keeps coming in and intruding and forcing himself into his world. And then at the very end, it's just like, well, that's not what I wanted, but that's not how Steven feels or his family. Right. That's how Martin feels. Yeah, well, and it's it's almost like um, I feel like it's the film version of brutalist architecture. Like it's just <laughs> this is just what it is. It's it feels it's an absurd premise. It's a banana circumstances, and the people behave unreasonably. But it feels almost like that's life, guys. Sometimes you don't get. Often you don't get. Often the bad guy gets away. Often the powerful and amoral people retain their power and their and their status in the world and there is no resolution. So it, it feels like it's really on the audience to perform the resolution themselves internally. Yeah. As yeah. In, I think kind of that expression of like, yeah, I really wanted more than this. Yeah. And that was definitely the vibe at my screening. They were, the audience was breaking up into individual discussion groups, grumbling about what they would have done and how they didn't like it. And it's just like, but, but, but that's the point of the movie. It, oh. it, any film that half the people love and half the people hate is doing something right. I think it's just it, like it starts, starts a nerve. Well, okay. Hate, hate, love 73. Yeah, pretty much. Well, uh, well, it's fine. I, I enjoyed it. I, like, I got what I wanted. <laughs> well, that's good. I can't imagine. I mean, I watched it on my laptop as homework at 10 o'clock oh, in the morning. God, yeah. Like, so I, so I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this for shot choices. All right. Thanks Cabot. Here we go. Cause the previous reference that we had watched together was Guillermo del Toro cabinet of curiosities. They, there's an episode that has to do with like face cream and, and aesthetics. Um, and Cabot 
asked me about that as an example of like wide angle lenses. So I watched it and, that, you know, it's fine. It's good. It's not what I wanted to do. So I was watching it and taking notes and being like, mm, not really that. How do I get from that to what I want to do? And then, you know, watch the second reference and be like, okay, so now I'm going to work it. What? Oh my God. And now I'm trapped for two hours. It was the most wonderful. And I came into it completely blind. I had never seen a Yorgos Lanthimos film. Oh, I didn't wow. know what to expect. I'd heard about the lobster. I wanted to see it. Hadn't seen it. You know, I'd seen the poster and I was like, oh, that looks cool. I like that aesthetic. But that's about the sum of the contact I'd had with his work. So it was entirely fresh and like being dropped onto another planet. Oh, that would be great. That would really be delightful. so cool. I haven't, yeah, I'm at a disadvantage. I'd seen all, I had seen all his films um, and it was like, it's part of the continuum. It absolutely feels like his, his work that's continuing. Have you, have you caught up to his other stuff yet since? Or? I've seen the lobster and I want to see poor things, but I haven't seen other, uh, I, I, it's a, only 24 hours in the day, unfortunately. Sure, sure. I think he's made like 12 hours worth of movies. You could, you know, get ahead. Do that. Uh, okay. Dogtooth, Alps, um, both, both solid alienating comedies. Um, Dogtooth is about homeschooling, really. I mean, literally, yeah, that's, that's what it's about. Yeah, that's the plane, right? Yeah, but it's just I, I the think most... I feel like I've seen excerpts of it. Probably. I mean, it, it was the sort of the, the front end of the, the Greek weird wave, I think they ended up calling it. <laughs> In the early 2010s, gave us, um, you know, like Anna Attenberg and um, uh, Chevalier, Athena Rachel Singari's films, and um, a whole bunch of other stuff that comes from basically Dogtooth, basically him making mm -hmm. that movie and just launching this movement. Uh, although I'm sure someone will correct me and tell me there were five short films that I didn't know about beforehand, which is probably true. But, um, but now he's like working with. You know, getting Olivia Coleman an Oscar for the favorite and 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 working with yeah. Emma Stone again on poor things. And he's just he he has fit into the space that is being created right now in American cinema where the reaction to the giant blockbuster film is to just make weird things that people talk about. And yeah. box office is almost less important, which you know, it absolutely should be. This this idea that every movie has to be a blockbuster to get people in the theaters is is deeply breaking our concept of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> but watching it's a good backlash. It, I like this backlash. Oh yeah. I'm all for it. One. Um, but watching it be him, like having him mm. be the avatar of it, having him be the standard bearer now, all of a sudden is just so strange because <laughs> this is the guy who was making little movies with his friends. Right. Uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago now. And then just kept working with the same people and kept pulling the same ideas. And then someone brought him over to America and this is what happens. And it's, it's been such an interesting trajectory. I wonder how he feels about it. And, you know, I'd love cool. to talk to him about how, how it's, how it's gone, like the practicality of it and, and, and where killing of a sacred deer fits because the lobster was well-received enough that, you know, you suddenly you can get Nicole Kidman for your next right. picture. It was still, I mean, she's in a weird place right now, I think as a, as a movie star and that she's still a huge figure, but she has, and, th and this is what six years ago now but she mm -hmm. has reached the position where she can pick and choose and, and only work when she wants to and do what she wants to and you know produce an entire miniseries in australia if she wants to do that and you know a lot of people slept on nine perfect strangers it's really fun um but here she's just giving herself over entirely to the production right like this is yeah. a role that requires 
everything from her in a tiny register. Yeah. And you buy it. You believe that you believe that she still wants to be around Farrell's character. And Stephen is just such a a black hole of narcissism and charisma, but you understand their relationship and what they get from each other. And I just I, you know, Farrell, the whole movie is placed on Farrell's shoulders, but it's one of those, you know, Ginger Rogers situations where Mm-hmm. Kidman is doing so much and she's doing so much in the role of the conventional wife and mother to subvert that. Yeah. That it's like, that's the thing going back and watching it again. It's like, wow, I really did not pay attention to her. I didn't pay enough attention to what she's doing. It's uh, the, there's this magic moment of um, faith and trust you know, on every film, mm. like, unless it's like a, a hallmark. MOW. But you know, when the the actor director thing that happens, or when you invite someone in to be in a position where you can get Nicole Kidman to buy into your weird, weird vision. What a dream. How do can you imagine being in that? Like, here's what I want to do. And then you lie on the bed and pretend that you're in total. Uh, twilight amnesia not amnesia anesthesia uh and to have her be like okay yeah i'm into it let's go what how do you ever i would expire on the spot and then burst into flames like it would be i i'm so glad that he got to develop this voice with friends in starting small and for lack of a better word pure Mm. I've done I've done a certain amount of producing when there's money involved and a lot of producing when there isn't any money involved and the artistic process is entirely different between those two things so having the opportunity to develop a voice and a body of work without having to bow to you know the dollars that you need to make the thing go has I feel like has bought him runway and good faith that has allowed him to continue to do these big audacious weird out there movies because he's like no I did it I did it back there and back there and back there so now I'm going to do it over here and I'm going to have millions and millions of dollars to play with and you're going to just let me do whatever I want to do even if you don't understand it because I've demonstrated that I can do that and that honestly is the dreamiest career path I've ever seen in my life. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on shiny things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Via Vision's imprint editions of J.A. Bayona's The Orphanage and William Friedkin's Bug, and Warner's excellent new 4K restoration of The Fugitive. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. I would think having those actors on board would also give you some level of insulation, right? Like you're protected well, for from sure, interference. But even getting them on board in the first place, you have to have your track record, right? Like mm-hmm. it, you can't just go knock and call on Carol's yeah. door and be like, Hey, be a bad guy. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Like having, having, being able to, to say, I'm the guy who made this and having them say, Oh, I know, let's do this. Let's work together. Yes. I, I, where does it start? Does Farrell reach out to Lanthimos? Does Lanthimos reach out to Farrell for the for the lobster? Who like I want to know where the ball started rolling because that cast is 
remarkable. And this cast is, again, smaller, more tightly focused. And and I can, I can't, I can't imagine the pitch meet. I mean, I'm sure there wasn't a pitch meeting. It was just a blank check at some point for this. But like, <laughs> I made this movie, which was this bizarre comedy about people looking for love. And now I'm doing a film about the absence of emotion uh, yeah. with five people in a room, effectively. Yeah. Um, for the most part, you know, I mean, like Alicia Silverstone and Bill Camp are around, but they're not integral to the story. Mm -hmm. Silverstone's character is initially, but she's like that's a first act thing, and then yeah, you yeah. just you just winnow the focus down to this handful of people, and ultimately this one guy who is the last person you want to make a decision of any magnitude. Yeah, and that's where you're going to leave us. That's where you're going to lock the film, and. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can make it cheaply. That would be an appeal. But yeah, you need everybody to to believe in this at exactly the right level to make it happen. Well, at all. And, yeah, and you need to. I mean, I feel like not to sound terribly pretentious or anything, but I when I'm trying to pitch a something, when I was trying to pitch cold to people, I had a paragraph. I was like, "Here's the idea. Here's what I've got. Here's the nugget. Hmm. What do you think? Does it resonate? Do you want to come in?" And I couldn't articulate any further than that paragraph at that time what the movie was going to be. Okay. And so the people who jumped in on the, on this paragraph premise jumped in because they had faith in me as an artist and they had faith in the notion of the film and then just kind of hung onto the rope while I ran as fast as I could to make the thing happen. And, you know, they're bouncing along on the pavement behind me, but still hanging on. And having that kind of team hold onto the rope on a project of this size would be, uh, it requires blind faith, I think. Like for a film this weird, for a film as weird as Killing of the Sacred Deer, it, at some point in that non-existent pitch meeting, it's just like, just trust me. Just, it's going to be cool. Just, it's going to be fine. You'll see. Just hang on. It'll be weird. It'll be cool. I'm not going to explain it any more than this. Let's go shoot. Come on. Let's go to set, you know, and then that's it. That's the negotiation. Because uh, after a certain point, you can't break stuff down into pitch documents anymore. You know, you can't articulate, you know, and then I'm going to hold on a super wide of a hospital. Nicole Kidman's going to be 1.5 millimeters tall on the screen, giving the performance of a lifetime. And we're just going to hold on the wide forever and you're going to hate it. And that's my choice in the edit. It's like, what? No. Oh my God. My heart. I can't take it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, cinema of edging. It's uh yeah. it's amazing. But the the other thing about that is here at least he can just like, well, Colin gets it. And yeah, you know, they've worked together before. So that's like that's a, true. a green light. But the 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 idea of boiling cold down to a pitch, like a, a paragraph, that makes sense. The metaphors really you know, like easily articulated. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the metaphor is in the killing of a sacred deer. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Like the it's oh yes, it's an adaptation of a it's it's loosely inspired by a Greek tragedy that no one has heard of. Uh yeah. like an ancillary aspect of the Trojan women. It's a story that happened in the background and really doesn't amount to very much dramatically. Um and here we're gonna turn it into this. Right. And it it is like unquestionably a vision like it is yeah. exactly what it wants to be uh, the confidence the assurance all the things you mentioned that grabbed you in the first 30 seconds it is all there and it delivers and pays off in its own specific way but oh boy i, I yeah 
I pity the person, the first person who had to write the press notes. No, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. How do you how do you distill that into anything? Like because it's I, I don't know how long the script was. I can't imagine it was very long. It feels there's, pretty terse, yeah. It's there's not a lot of words happening, maybe a lot of scene direction, but I'm you know, this is like a two or three minutes per page kind of a kind of a film. And so and and I know there are other films that have been made with these incredibly short scripts because they're all visual and they're all you know, choreography and so on. I feel like that's the the heroine I'm chasing now as a filmmaker is the building my team of people who are like, will come with me when I'm like, no, no, trust me, it's gonna be cool. You'll see. Come on. It's gonna we're gonna spend eight minutes per page. It's gonna be great. Come on. It's gonna <laughs> everybody's lie on the floor for a while. It's gonna be good. Don't worry. And when you have people who trust you to that extent, you can get away with anything. Right, like it's yeah. it's why Cronenberg's been working with the same people for forty years. They're, they're the unspoken language, knowing that they understand each other, and still having the room to try other things, do other things in between, and go off and do other projects. Like it's that that level of, um, it's trust, it's confidence, it's intimacy. I suppose more than anything else, right? Like it's sure. it's hours and months of meetings and and shoots where you just figure out what it is you're doing and then you don't have to figure it out anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's the opposite of the standard network process or the standard commercial blockbuster process where there's a bunch of people weighing mm. in on each decision. So there's this freedom to be uh, risky and audacious and, and kind of crazy, like to the luxury of not having someone second guess an instinctive choice is important for, for this kind of movie to be made. And it's also like, uh, whose quote is it? It's it, it doesn't matter what your movie is about, it's how it's about it. Oh, Ebert used to say it all the time, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's that. So this movie could, like the, the same, if you were to sacred deer paragraph pitch, you know, it's based on a Greek tragedy. Right. It could be anything. It could be a musical. It could be, you know, a bunch of soft shoe in a soundstage. It could be, you know, a silent film. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I've lost the thread of my own thought in talking about that because I get lost in circles. I think, yeah, you're, once something is being developed, it builds a certain momentum. Like there's a, there's a, there's a, an arrow, there's an angle that you, you follow in order to get the thing made to communicate it to other people. And so, yeah, it's not, this, this was not a project that was noted to death. There's yeah, no clearly. sense that anybody's like, oh, I don't know. Can yeah. we make something like which which character is the one who the audience will like? And it's like, oh, none yeah. of them. None of them will be liked. That's <laughs> not what this movie is. Can we add a voiceover? Let's add oh. a narrator to explain what's happening. Oh, God. They would pick the daughter. Like it would be the surviving <laughs> child. So you would know yeah. that everything's going to be okay for her on some level. Oh, oh, that would have been awful. Some people told me my parents were weird. <laughs> you know, this was the I thought you're wondering how I changed. got into it. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, God, that hurts true. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything did change. It's true. That, oh, when she sings that scene, just hold, just staying on it forever, it's just so painful. It's, ah, it's wonderful. And that, the awkwardness of it all is just, it's, uh, it's delicious. The sense that none of this is going to help. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's and it's not a film that collapses into despair, even though, again, like the there are other versions of this movie that would do nothing but. Mm-hmm. It would be, I mean, and I've seen versions of that that are interesting and, and compelling and good. And people stuck with an impossible situation just giving into the misery of it but the like you know there's bergman and then there's the other side where it's all histrionics and and wailing yeah. because people confuse you know best acting with most acting and they just yeah, yeah. go for it <laughs> and here it's just like that the ratcheting down the way the the way the control of of performance is i mean it's almost it's almost a master class except that it's not because the stylization disconnects you and it never feels like oh wow look at how minimalist they're being it's just right. this, this is the air they're breathing yeah it's it i i, I will challenge the not a masterclass statement though just okay. because they're so i'm going to tell you a story that may seem unrelated no, um, bring it. my husband was cutting tennis balls to package a wooden box that he wanted to ship in the mail. So putting tennis balls on the corners to protect the wood mm-hmm. using a box cutter, total lapse of judgment. He cut towards himself and stabbed himself in the stomach with a box cutter. Ooh, God. It, the blade was only out, you know, an inch or so, but you know, an inch is plenty when you're stabbing yourself in the stomach <laughs> with a box cutter. He was on the porch doing this and I was inside. And the reason I knew something terrible had happened is because nothing happened absolute silence and stillness and it was you could call that a denial of emotional activity or whatever but it was the most efficient communication of disaster that i've ever experienced in real life and it i knew immediately you know i ran outside and oh my god was going to blood we go to the hospital and he's fine now there's a hole in his hoodie that he was wearing that day but he's gonna be okay uh, <laughs> But it, it's that, like, the the world ends and nothing happens. And it's, I feel like that conveys more than everything happening, if that makes sense. It does. Well, it makes it personal, right? The world ends for you. Everything yes, else exactly. is going on, yeah. but you close off. Yeah, yeah, I've I've absolutely experienced moments like that, and it's um, it's almost impossible to communicate it to someone who hasn't experienced it. Yeah, um, because it's it's a form of shock, I think, right? Like the body just stops taking in stimulus for a minute. Yeah, as you think, your brain takes over completely and just locks itself off. And this movie feels like we're in the bubble with them from beginning to end, as this is yeah. this long crisis goes on. And you know, it's it's the same reason the actor, like the, the supporting cast, falls away. The world gets smaller. Wow, yeah, I had not thought of it that way, but that's exactly what this is. Well, it's, I mean, but that's the whole thing. Like, I mean, I've spent way too long in theater school too, and they you hear over and over like you have to play drunk, play sober, play mm-hmm. as sober as you can play. If you have to play injured, play I'm fine. You know, like just go, do the opposite thing, and you'll be closer to normal human behavior because we're liars. <laughs> We're always liars. Right. So that well, I mean, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And that, that actually brings us to cold, really, because it does, that's, yeah. it's an entire uh, it's an entire study, or it is its entirety is a study of someone who knows there's something wrong but can't articulate it 
and yeah. everyone else around her refusing to acknowledge that something is wrong. It's not even people trying to talk her into sharing. It's mm -hmm. the constant active denial by the time we meet these people that, yeah. that something is wrong. A bunch of somethings. Yeah. So, so many somethings are wrong and it's a foundational wrongness. It's the most wrong that everything can be all at once. Um, and just a bunch of people who don't have the right tools to help solve the problem. So, you know, you have a husband trying to solve the problem with cupcakes and manicures and it's like putting a bandaid on a leaking dam. Like it's not gonna, nothing is going to get better because of yoga. Nothing's going to get better because of face cream. Um, and it's, yeah, it's basically that it's just everyone for gaslighting to work for medical gaslighting and social gaslighting to work. The person being gaslit has to participate yeah. because if you just look it in the eye and say, actually that's bullshit. And I know this is wrong. Then it doesn't take, and you either lose the person who's trying to sell you the lie or they have to meet you where you are. So, I mean, by the end of cold, I'm a, I'm a, you know, visual gal. So it becomes tactile and visual. It's like this took over into well, I'm, I can't do all the things I'm being told to do anymore. So I guess I just give into chaos. I guess that's what's happening now. Just fuck it. And then, you know, everything comes to pieces. I don't want to spoil everything, but it's, you know, it's only a short. Um, and I feel like that's a state that a lot of uh, women and medically vulnerable people find themselves in after a certain amount of, you know, have you tried Reiki? Right. It stops being a caring gesture and starts being a destructive one. Yeah. The, the world is telling her to be quiet. And yeah. that's not, first of all, the casting uh, makes sure that's not going to happen because Melanie <laughs> Scarfano is the person you cast for chaos, I think, for like emotional yeah. chaos. She's, there's no one better at doing her specific yeah. thing. And so the idea of her being still and quiet is automatically just like, I'm not on board. That's not going to, that's not what I want to see. Again, right? Like it's, it's sitting down with the expectation that you're going to see a certain kind of story. Um, but when I, when you sent me the pitch for the film and, and I, I saw that's what you were doing, I think I must've seen it on Instagram before we actually talked yeah, about you it. Yeah, I think you saw a press release on Instagram. Yeah, and I was so like, excited when you, you commented on that. I was like, oh, no, I saw it. Oh, but I want this. <laughs> this like this is this is the idea. This is like, it's such a, it's such a great idea. And, and people, um, again, people who haven't seen it, which is most people listening to this, I'm assuming, uh, mm -hmm. will, will get the thing they want from it because, I hope so. well, you know what you're, you're like, you know, again, you have the pitch, you know what it is mm -hmm. and, and everybody on is on board with that, but it is the kind of story that depends entirely on execution. Cause it, there are versions of this that are not as interesting and I've seen a bunch of them. Um, like it's or the metaphor being what it is and the, and the story going where it does it's you found a way to root it in a in a slow motion crisis that mm. only one character is feeling but that means we feel it for her we we're brought in like right? we are brought along on it rather than told right off the start that this is this and it's going to stay this way and now we have 20 minutes to kill but 
Yeah. The, the discovery <laughs> is more interesting. we're going to spend all 20 minutes in the bathroom looking in the mirror. That's what we're going to do for the rest of this movie. There are so movies like that. There, yeah, yes, I know. Uh, it's been interesting to, even from the pitch stage, I and right through to sending out the screener to, to people for feedback and notes and so on, um, or even just look what I made. Uh, it's been really fascinating that, because I wrote it as a tragedy. It came out of a, a period of crisis for me. And I had to make it go out onto mm. a page. Uh, the women I have shared it with almost universally, unless they're very young, find it to be devastating. The men I have shared it with, with one or two exceptions, find it to be hilarious. And it is wild to me. Interesting. That it's so, I mean, it's nice. And nobody's told me they hate it. So that's nice. But it's, you know, the, it's the the comedy tragedy division and how cleanly it slides down gender lines is wild to me. Postmenopausal women, they can't, uh, one, in, one person in particular who watched it said she couldn't stop crying because it felt like a portrait of what she had experienced. And there's something like 80% of women going through menopause have some kind of negative symptom or series of symptoms that is this very classic medical gaslighting you cannot get care you can't get a resolution for for this life-altering thing you're experiencing uh and it's it's baffling to me that this is it's not a new thing that happens to half of the population of the planet but there's still this kind of chasm right this void of care yeah, and as I understand it, weirdly enough, that's also what Poor Things is about, Ooh. which is the the not the menopause aspect of it, but the fact that the the masculinity of the medical establishment. I mean, it's it's a Frankenstein story. It's set in the nineteenth century, but it is that mentality. It's the mm. thing that Mary Shelley was sort of pushing against in her subtextual way in Frankenstein was that the the instinct to control all of life is a specifically yeah. masculine one specifically Victorian men kind of one or Edward no Victorian um yeah. the it is apparently about uh the a doctor's attempt to control his creations specifically her sexuality her body uh right. and and oh I'm just tomorrow I will have so much more knowledge uh oh man I cannot wait to see it I'm so excited for that just even you know the trailers that I've seen for it just because it's it's again it's this not shying away from the blending of horrific and funny and yeah. not in a Shaun of the Dead way and Shaun of the Dead is a great movie it's really fun and funny and entertaining it doesn't punch me in the gut in the same way that this kind of like awful funny does yeah and no I, well Shaun of the Dead is the opposite right it's, it's a story about arrested development it's about somebody yeah. who's forced into adulthood by the end of the world exactly and in in cold her world is ending but mm -hmm. but no one else's is or right. the 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 other women around her have told her they're telling her ways to cope with it but that's not what she wants she just wants the acknowledgement i mean she yeah, would like or it just, to stop i think also but well, yeah that would be nice because yeah. the, the decomposition is a problem um <laughs> but yeah it's that do the things you're supposed to do toe the line you know the, the way things are is the way things should be and she's having this undeniable process that is changing her perception of herself in the world and requiring her to change how she moves through it 
because you can only white knuckle for so long before you have to uh it's it's kind of a, a chrysalis to butterfly thing it's a much grosser chrysalis to butterfly story you know she has to turn into a pile of goo before she can become the next thing that she's going to become my thanks to liz whitmere whose first short film cold has its world premiere this saturday november 25th in the mournful mediums program at toronto's blood in the snow film festival tickets are still available at bloodinthesnow.ca and friend of the show mh murray has one in there too thanks also to winnie wong she knows what she did you can follow Liz on Instagram and Blue Sky at Liz Whitmere, all one word, and you can find The Killing of a Sacred Deer on Blu-ray from Elevation Pictures in Canada and Lionsgate in the U.S., and streaming on Hoopla, Tubi, Mubi, and Plex in Canada, and on Hoopla, Canopy, Paramount+, Plus, and Showtime in the U.S. It's also available to rent and buy on various VOD services. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out, get the new booster when you can. I'll see you next week.